From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Practitioners of traditional Chinese medicine put a high price on the healing power of bear bile, and for centuries, thousands of bears were slaughtered for their organs. Few bears are being killed for their gallbladders these days. Instead, many now suffer a fate perhaps worse than death. On bear farms throughout Asia, the animals are being held captive, immobilized in small cages, while they are milked of their bile. They had head wounds from where they'd consistently banged their heads against the bars of the cage. They had gaping, infected holes in the middle of their abdomens. I mean, I, I don't know how anyone listening to this can comprehend the suffering that a sentient species, an animal that feels pain in the same way that, that we do, can actually tolerate this existence for up to 20 years of its life, which is what these bears do. The plight of the moon bears of Asia on Living on Earth this week. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We begin our program this week with an examination of mold. Okay, granted, not the world's most pressing problem these days, but if mold gets trapped in your carpets or festers between walls, it can make you sick to the point you may have to evacuate your home. Chronic problems with mold spores have spurred an industry of cleanup crews and special investigators who sniff out the source of stubborn mold growth and get rid of it. Joining me now are husband and wife Jeffrey and Connie May. They run a mold detective agency in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and field all sorts of calls for fungal emergencies. They've written a book on the science and sources of mold and how you can rid your home of even the most persistent spores. It's called The Mold Survival Guide for Your Home and Your Health. Jeffrey and Connie May, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Steve. Thank you, Steve. So what exactly is mold? I, I understand that there are a lot of varieties, but, but, but principally, what do we come in contact with in our, in our homes? Well, mostly we come in contact with the sort of the spores, which are the sort of reproductive seeds of, of mold. But mold is a plant-like growth, and uh, wherever it, it's warm and damp, the spores will begin to will germinate and start to grow. And most people are familiar with the colonies. They see little round dots. Maybe it'll be on the bathroom ceiling or it'll be on the outside of the house. Most of the molds are either black or brown or sort of greenish or you know bluish colored, but uh, some are, are are white. And um, when you know they, a lot of people say mold is everywhere, and I think that's a it's a shame. It's a real misconception because although spores are everywhere in the air because they're dispersed by the wind, mold is not everywhere, and it's very unhealthy to live in a house where there's mold anywhere or to be in a building. You can't, you know, you should not have mold, visible mold on the ceiling tiles. You shouldn't have visible mold on walls. It is um, because the mold produces billions. One colony like that that you can see produces millions to billions of spores. So what happens to somebody if, in fact, the mold is in their house? Well, it really depends. I mean, some people get asthma, some people develop chronic coughs, other people have um, asthma symptoms. But just you know, just the fact that you see mold on a surface doesn't necessarily mean that you're breathing it. And in some situations, I've actually test sampled the air and found you know where there was a lot of mold, let's say on a wall or a ceiling, and not found any mold spores at all. So it's very tricky. And you'll be in another environment 
where you look up at the ceiling and you you know it doesn't look like there's anything and then you realize the ceiling is covered with mold and then there are just many many you know thousands of spores in the air it's very unpredictable yeah people call us up and they're worried about the mold they see in their attic or they're worried about the mold they see in their bathroom ceiling but it's really the mold that they that they don't see in their basement carpets or um you know in the in the fiberglass insulation that's going to be contaminating the air they breathe Connie, in your work in in, in, uh, in helping people figure out how to straighten their homes out from mold, what are the key things that you look for? Where do people typically get into trouble with mold in a home? Well, moisture control is, I think, of paramount importance. And when people think about moisture control, they think about leaks and visible water that you know intrudes into their home one way or another. And really, it's relative humidity that's the biggest problem in homes. Relative humidity? This is uncle or your aunt? or <laughs> <laughs> uh, No, relative humidity is a measure of how much moisture the air holds in relationship to how much it can hold at any given temperature. So if air at a certain temperature is 70% relative humidity, it means that it can hold 30% more before it's saturated. Mm-hmm. Um, and many kinds of molds can flourish in 70% relative humidity with, in the absence of liquid water. And people don't understand this, so they they allow conditions to arise in their homes that are conducive to mold growth, um, and then they worry about the leak behind the bathroom wall, whereas really it's the basement carpet that's that's the problem. The you the the thing that's we, we, the reason why we're not all having mildew everywhere is because you need consistent periods of relative humidity in order for the growth. So if the relative humidity, let's say, in the bathroom goes up to you know, 85 or 90 percent for 15 or 20 minutes, you open the door and then it drops down again. So time is really important as well as the, you know, the relative humidity. Okay, somebody's got a mold problem. What's the surefire way to get rid of it? In your book, you say that bleaching isn't enough. It's pretty complicated, so it's not something you could really just, you know, give somebody advice. In fact, I made that mistake once. I was talking about maybe using a little bleach on an air conditioner, and then I suddenly realized, you know, if you're on the fourth floor of an apartment house and you pour a quart of bleach into your air conditioner, somebody down in the street is going to be walking along. They'll probably end up blind, or you'll bleach their, you know, their red shirt or something. So I think cleaning advice, it's its complicated, but a good example, let's say, would be in a bathroom. You know, let's say that people have been cleaning mildew out of their bathrooms for years. And, you know, that's certainly a, a perfectly doable task. On the other hand, if you've got a basement full of mold, then you may have to get some professionals to do that. And you have to be very careful, particularly if people who are sensitized are involved in the cleanup. Yeah. But the, the big mistake that anybody can make is to clean up a big mold problem and then not really change the conditions that led to the growth. You can clean things up. And we get calls like this all the time from people. You know, well, we just, you know, we bleached the bathroom again and there's mildew everywhere. And, you know, what's wrong? You know, why do we have to keep doing this? Or we spent $5,000 and had professionals clean our basement and now there's mold again. And meanwhile, they're, they've got cardboard boxes directly on the concrete slab and they're not dehumidifying the basement. So mold comes back. It's not like lead paint. It's not either there or not there. It's, it's a living thing, so it will reoccur. You write in your book that uh, mold is gold, that, uh, well, the business of mold removal, dare I say, has mushroomed along with the <laughs> awareness. Um, can you uh, talk about this and uh, tell me what you've come across uh, along these lines personally? Well, I think that, that, um, I think that mold is certainly a, a concern and it's something to take very seriously, but I also think that 
because they're so worried about it, people have been sort of duped. And we've had people who've called up with a soot problem in their home, and they think it's mold, or they have efflorescence in their basement. They've been told they need a $10,000 cleanup job, and they moved into a hotel, and it's not mold. So I, I think understanding it will help people reach clarity about when to worry, when not, what is and what isn't mold. There are, you know, the mold is gold. There are, they have special courses for attorneys on how to litigate mold problems. They're traveling around the country. There's courses for mold inspectors on how to, you know, sample for mold. And there are labs that are sprouting up everywhere. And a lot of them really aren't all that competent. So it's a Wild West sort of, you know, frontier out there. Jeff, you know, you say in your book up front that you have mold allergies, and yet you work with it every day. Why do you do this to yourself? Well, it's a little crazy, but uh, actually I, we try and help people, and I use my my own sensitivity, really, to, to help find problems. But I do also have some pretty sophisticated instrumentation that I use. So what it does, the way it helps me is that it directs me to the place where there are problems. If if people who are not sensitized go into a space, they don't know where to start, but I, I know where to start. So um, what's it like to live with somebody who is highly allergic to mold and yet dives into it every day? Well, the the bigger question for me is what it's like to live with someone who has obsessive interests. And he got into this interest because our two children are asthmatic. But um, it is a little odd, I must say. I mean, instead of pictures of our children on the walls, we have pictures of of dust mite fecal pellets and um, photo micrographs of mold spores. And he keeps, he's kept every single one of the samples of the 16 samples that he's ever taken, and they're all carefully categorized in the basement. 16,000 samples. 16,000 samples that he's taken. So um, what's it like? I've gotten, I've gotten used to being married to someone who's brilliantly obsessive, I guess. <laughs> what if some of this mold escapes into your house? You've been doing it for 14 years and nothing's ever escaped. Well, actually, so I, once I did, I dropped one. I, it was sort of interesting. I dropped one petri dish that was full of mold, and I was so I was so fearful. But the first thing that I did was I slammed the door shut, and then I got an air sampler out because I wanted to see how bad it really was. And it was this penicillium mold. And the entire room was full of spores. And then I uh, I put an exhaust fan in the window for five minutes, and I took a sample again, and it was all gone. So you can, you know, it was important to me to know that that in in minutes you could get rid of a problem like that. Connie, how do you see mold and fungi? Well, I used to uh, think it was disgusting, <laughs> but um, you know, now that I've watched Jeff become so interested in it, and I've learned so much about it. I I think it's very interesting, and I. Um, but for me, also, it's a human story because I'm I'm the person who's on the front lines in terms of of um, talking with people when they first contact the business, and so I'm the first person who hears these terrible stories and and speaks with all, usually women, often women, and usually when there's another woman on the phone when they call, they often are crying. They're often dealing with children who are very very sick, and so for me, um, mold is of course it's part of science and nature, but it's also a human drama, and that to me is. Um, both interesting and kind of tragic. Tell me one of the most compelling stories you've heard. Well, I think one of the most compelling stories I heard um, was the family with a little girl. Um, she was four, was she, Jeff? And the couch, remember? And they, she was on a... Um, oh, right. Younger even, yeah. She, she was three. She was taller. And she her asthma was so bad 
that her parents took turns sleeping in her room every night on a mattress on the floor so that they could give her her medication with a nebulizer. And they'd done everything they could possibly think of to um, clear the house of allergens. They'd removed all the wall-to-wall carpeting. They'd gotten rid of all the curtains. They'd put extra filtration in the system. They'd gotten a HEPA vacuum. I mean, a whole long list of things that they'd done. And still she was getting very, very sick. And Jeff went over to the house to do testing and found that the, that the furniture was contaminated and the parents said, oh, well, she doesn't go into that room. But they didn't realize that every time someone sat on the furniture, allergens became airborne and went with air flows to where she was. So within two weeks, she was off her nebulizer and they had a normal life with her. So I found that very moving. Now, I'm looking at your book here, Jeff, and along with, uh, with your experiences and instructions, you have uh, some pretty vivid pictures of mold. Here is... Looks like a fungus growing out of the side of, of of a house. That is correct. They actually that that was amazing that the, you know mushrooms sometimes sprout overnight out of the ground. These these mushrooms came out of that siding within a matter of a couple of days. So the 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 homeowner had no idea that they were there. I have to ask you. Uh, these are pretty vivid pictures, and I can't help but think that you find these pictures kind of fascinating. I absolutely, you know, it's it's part of nature. It's an extraordinary, beautiful thing. When you when you look at these things under a microscope, it's it's incredible, and it, you see how all the different living things interact with each other. There's you know the mold, the bacteria, the insects that eat them, and uh, you, I can't take my eyes off of them. I, mean, I guess it's just it's another world. It's nature's recycling. Yeah. Jeffrey and Connie May are authors of the Mold Survival Guide for your home and for your health. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Coming up, the growing trend to help people find out just how many toxic chemicals have built up in their bodies over the years. Biomonitoring is next. Stay tuned to NPR's Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In many cities and towns across the U.S., you can read the local newspaper to find out what's in the air you breathe, and in many communities, the water company will tell you what's flowing from your tap. It's useful information, but these days some people are demanding more. They want to find out what synthetic chemicals are in their blood, urine, and breast milk. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control have started keeping data on what substances are found in the tissues of the average American, but some people say averages aren't enough, that there's an individual right to know as well. In California, groups are pushing a bill that would set up the first statewide collection and analysis of human fluids. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports on the growing trend in biomonitoring. As Charles Patton sat in a tiny clinic room watching her blood fill yet another vial, she mused that after years as an activist lobbying against persistent chemicals, she would finally learn her own chemical fingerprint, what had built up in her body over a lifetime. When the results were emailed to her, she compared notes with several friends. Well, we all had funny different reactions to it. I mean, some of us looked at our, our scores and felt good because our numbers were less than other people in the group. I mean, there was that kind of little reaction. And I looked at my PCB levels and realized they were really high. And I thought, my goodness, I've just about won the PCB contest and that my dioxin levels are as high as the levels of some folks that live in uh, Louisiana in Cancer Alley. The levels were a surprise for Patton because she's chosen to live amid the wild green of Bolinas, a famously remote community on the coast north of San Francisco. I grew up in Colorado in a high mountain town, far away from factories and industry and incinerators. 
right? Growing our own cattle, our own vegetables. So the fact that I had these high levels said a couple of things. First of all, it's really hard to figure out the pathway of exposure by looking at your body burden levels. You just really don't know. You can't tell. There's no little marker on that chemical that says it was manufactured by this company or this is where you got it. There's no way I can send a bill to anyone for using my body as a toxic waste site. Patton's body, it turned out, contained 105 of the 210 metals and synthetic chemicals researchers tested for. Safe levels for many haven't been set. Her test results are consistent with other studies in the United States and Europe that chart the intrusion of the industrial age on the human body. Certain pesticides, for example, and PCBs used in plastics and insulators find their way into living things and settle in fat. Some are passed to babies in utero. Interest in body burden testing or biomonitoring has spiked since the late 1990s when scientists discovered that a type of chemical flame retardants called PBDEs had rapidly been building up in animals and humans. As reported previously on Living on Earth, those flame retardants used in fomatrix drapes, and furniture have now been found just about everywhere researchers have looked for them, in whales, in seabird eggs, in seals, and in breast milk, and nowhere higher than the United States. Speaking last year on this program, California state toxicologist Tom McDonald explained why these fire suppressants are a concern for developing babies. There's three primary concerns that we have with respect to health effects, and those include uh, neurodevelopmental changes, meaning learning and memory deficits in children, also uh, thyroid hormone disruption, as well as uh, possibly cancer. The concern basically comes from animal studies that have all shown that either in rats and mice, when you give PBDs to them, either in utero or early after birth, you get permanent changes in behavior and learning and memory. These are two, uh, they're half million dollar machines. Each of At them. the same Are lab they? where researchers found the flame retardants in seals and American breast milk, another researcher is taking the issue one step further. Environmental biochemist Kim Hooper is asking a question you don't often hear from American scientists, whether the current way of regulating chemicals is sufficiently protective of fetal and infant health. For the last uh, 25 years, we've been following this paradigm of we need to show a chemical disease, human disease connection. And it hasn't worked because we're not really regulating that many more chemicals than we were 25 years ago. So we need some kind of new paradigm. And one new paradigm would be let's look at body burdens. Let's look at chemical body burdens. After activists learned of the research on PBDEs, they helped get two widely used flame retardants banned in California. The manufacturer then volunteered to stop making them. But the activists want more. Donna Brownsey is a lobbyist in Sacramento for the Breast Cancer Fund. She hopes a broad program for body burden testing might one day reveal why one in eight women in the United States develops breast cancer. We believe breast cancer is a public health crisis. We believe we can no longer just ask women to be dutiful about doing monthly exams. We have to start looking at environmental causation. And Brownsey believes the increased interest in biomonitoring indicates a shift in public attitude. We think that uh, finally some of these environmental issues uh, have rightfully taken their place as environmental health issues. 
The emerging movement in America to test human beings for chemicals has found its center in the office of California State Senator Deborah Ortiz. She's authored a bill that would create the first statewide human monitoring program in the country. There are other countries that have actually done this, uh, Sweden, Germany as well, that have been doing this over time and measuring body burden. So some would suggest that you know, we're behind the curve in California. If her bill passes, scientists would choose three distinct California communities for initial testing. Senator Ortiz, who chairs the Senate Health Committee, sees biomonitoring as a powerful political tool because it could reveal geographic differences in exposure. So that we can, in fact, measure women who live in East Los Angeles near an incinerator or women who live in an area in the Central Valley where there's a lot of arsenic in the water, as well as women who live in non-heavily populated, non-industrial areas. I'd like to get us to the point where we have so much information that we can't turn a blind eye, that we can't turn our back to the huge, huge problems and the risks that we're placing on women throughout California. And maybe that data will get us there. Ortiz's emphasis on women points to one sensitive aspect of the California bill. It intends to find out what's in people's bodies by testing breast milk. Breast milk contains more fat, and so more of the fat-loving chemicals than blood, and you don't need a needle to extract it. But advocates of the bill, like Donna Brownsey, say there's a political reason for choosing breast milk, too. We believe that if breast milk talks, people will listen. Little Nicholas Howard clamps his mouth onto his mother's breast, but then he notices a microphone intruding on his nursing nirvana, and there's another distraction, his buddy Antonio. Some worry that using breast milk as the test fluid might dissuade some women from breastfeeding. I ran that concern past nursing moms Jane D'Onofrio and Carolyn Howard. Um, I would give a sample immediately. I don't know. What do you think? I would want to. I, I would be interested in giving a sample. Um, and first of all, to just see what was in my actual actual breast milk, because that would give me more information. And um, so I wouldn't have any reservations about going ahead and giving a, giving a sample. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I think we eat the way we eat when you know you're giving it to your baby. It's like, okay, well, I'll get the organic peppers, even if they're more expensive, because it's worth it. And breast milk, like in relation to formula, I think, okay, there's negative things in it, but maybe that's like where we can address our society on a whole with toxins in our world. You know, it's more of a societal huge issue as to why we have these things in our bodies and why certain things are contaminated. Few people have contemplated both the contamination and the health benefits of breast milk as much as biologist Sandra Steingraber of Ithaca College. Steingraber has been calling for a national dialogue on contaminants in breast milk. I asked her to read from a letter she wrote for the Ribbon Newsletter from Cornell University. Breastfed infants have fewer respiratory infections, diarrhea, middle ear infections, and die less often from sudden infant death syndrome. 
Breastfed infants grow into children who suffer less than their bottle-fed counterparts from juvenile diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, obesity, dental malocclusions, and some leukemias. They respond more vigorously to vaccinations. They have better hearing and visual acuity. They develop balance and gross motor coordination more quickly. It's also true that breast milk commonly violates Food and Drug Administration action levels for poisonous substances in food. Were it regulated like infant formula, the breast milk of many U.S. mothers would not be able to be legally sold on supermarket shelves. Steingraber is very careful to send a pro-breastfeeding message. She always made sure she was photographed breastfeeding her baby, Elijah. The people who are advocating it in the public health community, in the lactation community, the midwifery community, pediatricians and obstetricians, they're very touchy about any negative comment about breastfeeding and breast milk. So, and I I feel that way myself. On the other hand, I don't think public health is ever served by keeping secrets and the idea that nursing women should be protected against knowledge about what's in their milk to me is profoundly condescending and certainly as a nursing mother myself, I certainly want to know what's in my milk in the same way I want to know about infant car seat recalls. But while some advocates of biomonitoring see it as a right-to-know issue, others see California's effort as lacking focus and even irresponsible. The American Chemistry Council, in a letter, says that it's wrong to test breast milk and then somehow see the results as an indicator of community health. The council, which represents chemical manufacturers and users, says people mustn't confuse chemical exposure with harm, and some scientists share that concern. To many people, knowing that they're exposed spells disease. Exposure isn't a disease. Exposure is contact and absorption of a chemical. At the University of California at Riverside, toxicologist Robert Krieger and his associates analyze pesticides in human urine. Krieger supports the federal biomonitoring studies carried out by the Centers for Disease Control, but he believes the kind of biomonitoring where individuals get their own results back could cause unnecessary alarm. It's possible to measure much, much less than the amounts that have any biological significance in terms of health. And given the poor general information that people have about chemicals in their bodies, uh, I would think that a program such as that might carry more liabilities than benefits. I can give you an example here of uh, a compound that I've I found while I was doing an analysis. Researcher Travis Dinoff points to a screen showing a waveform of one chemical in a urine sample from a farm worker. It turns out to be oxybenzone, which is a sunscreen. If somebody had got a result back that said they had been exposed to oxybenzone, you know, they might say, oh God, I've been exposed to this chemical but it's actually something that they've actually put on their skin on purpose. And those uh, compounds are going to be absorbed and excreted somehow out of the body. Professor Krieger is suspicious that many people who want widespread biomonitoring really just want a backdoor to more chemical regulation. The numbers game is, is very treacherous. And the, the normal strategy is to find a low level of something and associate risk with it and then regulate that material at extremely low levels as though you're removing a risk. If the risk was nil or zero when you started, 
no matter how much you reduce it, you haven't done anything. The public has not gained anything. Krieger's concerned the side effects of that could be wasted money and an unwarranted fear of chemicals. To see if other researchers share this worry, I turn to Dana Barr, who's worked on the biomonitoring program at the Centers for Disease Control and heads the pesticide lab there. I asked her if she has reservations about testing as a tool in the hands of individuals. Uh, I do, because when you get all of these data, a lot of them aren't that easy to interpret right now on an individual basis. There are some that um, do have a clinical outcome associated with them, for instance, lead or mercury exposure. And so getting tested for those would make real sense because then you could reduce the exposure. There's some sort of an intervention that could occur. If you get tested for many of these other chemicals, we really don't know if there are health outcomes associated with it. And so the data are largely uninterpretable on an individual scale. But Dana Barr says she welcomes testing in city and state-run programs like ones being planned for New York City, New England, the Rocky Mountain West, and California. Oh, I think it's an outstanding idea, and I think it's very important to get at this geographic information because we do know that the geography and whether you live close to an agricultural region or whether you live close to an inner city, that that can affect what exposures you actually get. The bill to create the nation's first statewide biomonitoring program in California has passed the state Senate and is in the state assembly. Backers are no longer asking chemical manufacturers to cover the cost of testing after the Schwarzenegger administration made clear that was a non-starter. But whether the testing materializes this year or much later, its backers have raised intriguing questions about the right and the desire to know. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles. You can hear our program anytime on our website. The address is livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. You can reach us at comments at loe.org. Once again, comments at loe.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs, tapes, and transcripts are $15. ahead, the price the moon bears of Asia must pay in the practice of traditional medicine. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. A professor at the University of Florida has created the first low-carbohydrate potato, hoping to lure those on protein-heavy diets like Atkins back to the spud. Chad Hutchinson crossed potatoes with various traits like grade, size, vigor, and maturity. 
The result was a potato that ripened quicker than your average potato and is ready to harvest in 75 days, compared to more than 100 days for existing varieties. This speedier ripening time allows the potato to reach maturity before starch and sugar levels begin to rise. This in turn creates a spud with 33% less carbs than a standard russet. Researchers say what Hutchinson's potato lacks in carbohydrates, it makes up for in flavor and appearance. Its buff-colored skin and light yellow flesh will help growers market the tasty tuber as gourmet. Hutchinson partnered with a Dutch seed company to create the potato. He spent five seasons evaluating the crop in Florida's harsh weather extremes and says the potato will easily thrive there. In anticipation of the demand, Florida's potato growers plan to harvest their first crop in January 2005. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jennifer Chu. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Aveda, an earth-conscious beauty company committed to preserving natural resources and finding more sustainable ways of doing business. Information available at Aveda.com. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Foundation and the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities. On the web at WKKF.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In the forests and mountains of East Asia, the Asiatic black bear is a much-admired and sought-after species. Human fascination with these creatures date back centuries in ancient engravings and sculptures. If you were to see one today, it would look much like an American black bear, except for a yellow crescent on its chest, a marking that gives it its common name, moon bear. But it's not so much its unmistakable appearance that makes the moon bear such a coveted animal, but the liquid gold it carries inside. Bear bile has been a staple of traditional Chinese medicine for thousands of years. Its health benefits for humans have proven great, but the consequences for the bears are devastating. Jill Robinson is working to end the practice of bear farming with her China Bear Rescue Project. She's founder and CEO of Animals Asia Foundation and joins me now to talk about her investigation of this industry. Jill, hello. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. So the the China Bear Rescue Project has been a labor of love for you for what? more than five years. Huh? Oh, goodness, since 1993, actually. Yeah. And, um, and you've done, I guess, quite a bit. But for those of us who don't know your work, who are just catching up to what you're trying to do, um, perhaps you could, could tell us about the first time you, you, you first heard about this bear farming in right. China. Right. Um, I'll never forget it, actually. In fact, I'd heard a little about bear farming um, almost from when I'd arrived in Hong Kong from about 1985. But I think I never really believed in my mind that something so barbaric could be happening. And it was always something on the back burner while I was working on other issues in Asia, investigating um, dog and cat markets and wild animal trades, etc., etc. But then one day in 1993, I got a call from a friend of mine that was a journalist, and he'd just come back from southern China where he'd visited a bear farm. And at that time, there wasn't the sensitivity about the issue and he informed me that tourist groups were allowed to go there so I thought well okay I'll I'll join a a Japanese and Taiwanese tour group which is what I did and I snuck over and whilst the actual tour group were being were being briefed about the benefits of bear bile by the bile farmer and his wife I stole away from the group I found some steps leading down into a basement and I found myself in a 
a very dark room and really I, I could hardly make out <clears throat> too much except that there were many cages there. I wasn't quite sure what I was looking at. But what I did hear were these sort of popping vocalizations and each time that I like began... Like what? what? What did it sound like? It, just popping, pop. And each time I got closer towards a cage, mm -hmm. it became louder and more frantic. Mm -hmm. And as the image sort of pro um, produced itself in front of my eyes, I, I saw these Asiatic black bears in, in cages so small that they could hardly move. And this popping vocalisation, it's a nervous vocalisation when a bear is either deeply unhappy or deeply stressed. And it's it's usually anticipating something bad that is going to happen to the animal. And that is, as I say, the first sound and, and the first bit of information that I ever got from one of these bears was that my presence was causing an enormous fear. The bear was saying, help. Well, the bear was, was really, I think, believing that I was there to take its bile as, because any presence of a human being, that's all that had ever happened to it you know, in its years on a bear farm, whenever the, a human was there, something very unpleasant was just going about, uh, about to happen. Now, somebody listening to us talking about bear farming might think that we're talking about breeding bears. This has nothing to do with that. It's, it's nothing at all with breeding bears. It's a, it's, a, it's a horribly barbaric and very cruel practice. Um, China has actually been farming bears since the early 1980s. In fact, they began it as a, what they t termed as a responsible initiative to save wild bears from being taken for their whole gallbladders, which were then being used in the traditional Chinese medicine industry. Um, and they took bears and placed them in tiny wire cages, again so small they could hardly move, and began implanting catheters deep inside their gallbladders from which they could then milk bile on a daily basis. And they figured that that was a humane way of treating a wild species by simply keeping it alive and being able to use its body fluids. Mm. So I want to go back with you for a moment um, to this bear farm where you saw the bears in cages. The cage was about the size of the bear, and what else did you say? Well, it's um, it's what we're seeing today. I mean, we've started the rescue, and we're getting dozens and dozens of bears coming into our rescue center, but I actually won't forget that first time that I ever saw my first bear on a bear farm. Um, they'd grown into the cage bars, so that meant that they had scars running three to four feet in length across their bodies. They had teeth that had been deliberately cut back by the farmer to the gums, so it was exposing the pulp. They had um, paws that had been deliberately declawed, and I don't, I don't mean just trimming the claws, I mean cutting the end digit off of the fingertips of their paws so that those claws will never grow back again. And this is to take away their defences and make them easier to milk. They had urine and faecal burns across their bodies where they couldn't obviously groom properly. They had head wounds from where they'd consistently banged their heads against the bars of the cage because they had gone literally cage crazy. They were completely frustrated and stereotypic bears, t stereotypic animals. And last and definitely not least, they had gaping infected holes in the middle of their abdomens. I mean, I, I don't know how anyone listening to this can comprehend the suffering that a sentient species, an animal that feels pain in the same way that, that we do, can actually tolerate this existence for up to 20 years of its life which is what these bears do you know you imagine you having a toothache or you slamming your fingers in a car door or having chronic stomach conditions these bears suffer this day in day out for 20 years of their life before they die so you saw these bears then what did you do next well at, just at one point as I was walking around the farm 
I must have stepped back in horror and I felt something touch my shoulder and it was a female bear with her paw stretched through the arms of the uh, bars of the cage and I did something very stupid in retrospect. I, I work with bears, I've been working with them now for 10 years and I wouldn't do anything so silly today but her paw was there and it seemed the most natural thing in the world to touch it and to take her paw and rather than ripping my arm from my shoulders as she had every right to do, she didn't. She just rhythmically squeezed my fingers and you know if ever any of us get a message in life that was that was um, a pretty significant one for me we never saved her and it's a source of great sadness to me um, but um, but she lives on she lives on in all the other bears that we save on the farms and um, and as I say she's she's become our unknown ambassador and we, we gave her a name of Hong and she, her memory will live on Hong means Hong means bear in Cantonese Let's step back a little bit. I guess the use of bear bile, that is the liver bile from a bear, um, goes back into uh, the history of Chinese medicine, what, thousands of years? It does. It goes back approximately 3,000 years. And bear bile is termed as a cold medicine used to treat heat-related illnesses such as high fevers and high temperatures, red and sore eyes and chronic liver, liver complaints. Um, I, I should also say, actually, that there has been such a great belief in Chinese pharmacopoeia about the use of bear bile that it actually behoved myself to be finding out more information. And what I did find with very great shock is that the essential acid in bear bile, UDCA, or ursodeoxycholic acid, it works. Please let's not make any mistake about this. Bear bile does work. To fix coals, to... Um, actually, what it is being... Uh, it ca- could be used to great effect is that it, it actually rejuvenates um, brain cells that would otherwise die. So I think people are very excited that it's that this UDCA could be used for Huntington's, Parkinson's and ostensibly for Alzheimer's disease. But please let me emphasise that this acid, this UDCA, can very easily and very cheaply be synthesised um, in a lab w- without using bears. You do not need a bear to be synthesising this UDCA. So what products, uh, medicinal or otherwise, contain bear bile? You'll find a lot across the board, um, basically for liver complaints, chronic liver complaints, for healing um, eyes, for if you've got red and sore eyes, funnily enough, for in hemorrhoid preparations. Actually, I almost um, beyond belief you can find hangover cures um, bare bile sodas teas and wines and tonics this is obviously a market where it's beginning to die down in many aspects but there is a sort of over um, stock of bare bile if you will and a lot of the farmers now are using it in non-essential medicines they're just trying to flog it any way they can basically Talk, talk to me about the economics of this, Jill. You say that people started farming bears, that is, milking their, their bile instead of killing them. Um, what kind of money do people make if they go into this business? Well, in, in the early 80s, it was a boom industry. Thousands and thousands of dollars could be made from this by the bear farmers, you know, every month. This was more money than they'd ever dreamed of. Even today, um, you know, whole gallbladders can be worth anything up to 10,000 US dollars on the black market. It's a, it's a, it's a big industry. Um, but in China itself, it seems to be that there's a... a, a a lessening now of demand. It seems that farmers have now passed that boom period. And again, Chinese people are very pragmatic. There are a lot of herbs out there on the market that do the job just as well. So we've reached the stage today, 20 years later, where actually bear farming is suffering and bear farmers are suffering. And that combined with the cruelty, with the fact that we've exposed it very publicly, very internationally, and also that we're working on the ground with the Chinese government to try to gain... um, 
solutions to some of the problems the farmers and the local community are facing. All of this adds up to the fact that the government are now willing to close these farms down and to work with Animals Asia in ending bear farming once and for all. How big has this business been? Huge. It's been huge. What's huge? When I first exposed this industry in the early 1990s, there were some 10,000 bears kept on 500 farms across the country. Today, it's it's less, but it's still significant, and there's probably about 7,000 bears kept on about 200 bear farms in the country. Hmm. Now, all this bile from the bears used in China... (laughs) Officially, it has to be used only in China. But, of course, you go into any other Asia country or you go into um, traditional medicine consumers um, or Asian communities outside of uh, China in the international community, of course, you're going to find illegal bear bile abundantly. There are a lot of Chinese uh, medicine practitioners in the San Francisco area. If I were to go walking uh, in that neighborhood, would I be able to find some bear bile? I'm I'm sure in some of them you would be able to. I have to say a lot of other Chinese medicine doctors, practitioners and sellers are becoming very or are very ethical and are refusing to sell um, endangered species and products that they shouldn't be selling. So we're finding this more and more that we're actually getting a lot more support now within the traditional traditional medicine community themselves, which is very, very uh, reassuring to us. Talk to me about these synthetic substitutes for bear bile. Um, where do you find them, um, and and how effective are they? Well, again, they can be packaged. I mean, you just find them over the counter now, and synthetic UD, UDCA. There's a various, uh, a variety of different names. There's one that springs to mind called Actigol. It can be produced for pennies, for nothing. And what I have to say as well, having seen those bears on our surgery table, whose bile has been used in this in this industry, I would say that the synthetic version is a lot lot cleaner. I I couldn't begin to tell you what we are seeing when those bears are laid out and the mess that we are seeing in their bodies and that the you know what on earth is their bile actually doing to the end the end consumer basically it's full of pus what we're seeing I have to wonder if it's even possible to consider having these bears go back into the wild. It, it can't happen. They have to stay in rehabilitation for the rest of their days. They do, I'm afraid, yeah. But mainly that is because, although we can get them physically and mentally fit, again, um, the problem is that um, they've become too habituated to the human species. They rely on people for food. They always have at the farms. So if you let them loose, I know the problem you're getting with American black bears, you know, a fed bear is a dead bear. You're going to get these bears going into urban areas and, uh, you know, obviously after after food. So we have to keep them for life. And this is one expensive program, let me tell you. What's, What's involved with rehabilitating them? Well, they come in, we settle them down, we prioritise them for surgery. Um, they are facing um, weeks and weeks of medical and veterinary care. They have to be um, nourished and um, given enough nutrition and, and rehydrated. In fact, they're very dehydrated too. They're probably about half their body weight. They have severe muscle atrophy as well, um, where obviously they, they've never had any physical exercise in the cage. So they have to be built up and prepared for major abdominal surgery, which can last any Anything from three to seven hours um, to repair the damage. And again, what we find when we go into those, those bears' bodies is, is beyond belief. You know, you find old swabs that have been left behind from the previous surgery. You find massive abscesses. You find adhesions where various um, organs have adhesed to each other, the gallbladder and liver, for example. Um, 
a catalogue of abuse, a catalogue of injuries needs to be sorted out before they're anywhere near being released into a, a rehab area. Um, and then we, we put them into dens, we start slowly integrating them, getting them used to members of their own species. Um, they go into areas where they can play for the first time, they can socialise, they get yummy fruity milkshakes, they get ice pops. They and get, bears love honey, of course. And bears get honey. Only the other week I was out there with in the honey hives um, sourcing um, wild honey for these bears so that we can medi- you know, make their medicines taste better, so we can in- enrich the, uh, the rehab area where they are, lay trails of honey, give them... Again, these bears need to have their busy, intelligent minds kept busy. Jill, what's your next rescue operation going to be? This summer, we have another 90-plus bears coming into our rescue centre from a very big farm that is closing down. In fact, it's one of the first farms that we saw in 1999, and that farmer has phoned us off his own bat and asked us if we would help him close his farm because, in his own words, bear farming is going nowhere. That is music to our ears. Jill Robinson is the founder and CEO of Animals Asia Foundation. Jill, thanks so much for taking this time with me today. It's been a pleasure, Steve. Thank you very much. this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, the solar power industry is still tiny in the big energy picture, but starting to boom. Around the world, companies like Sharp and BP are building new factories to meet a growing demand. People don't realize that there's $3 billion of revenue generated in solar. They always believe it's this niche product that you see on highways and you see on uh, buoys in in a harbor, but no one really uses it in any significant way. And Relatively speaking, that's true. I mean, there are not that many homes in the United States that have solar panels on them. Um, But when you total it all up on a global basis, it is a very large number. And that's what people are starting to understand. The rising fortunes of power from the sun, next time on Living on Earth. And between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We leave you this week in the land of the moon bear. Jean Rocher recorded this dawn chorus in the forest of Kaoyai, Thailand.
Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Christopher Bolick, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Ingrid Lobet, Susan Shepard, and Jeff Young. Our interns are Jenny Cecil Moore, Diana Schoberg, and Monica Wright. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Our technical director is Paul Wabrek. Al Avery runs our website. Allison Dean composed our themes. Special thanks to Ernie Silver and Carl Lindemann. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earthier. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. 10% of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. The Ford Foundation, for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the Oak Foundation, for coverage of marine issues. This is NPR, National Public Radio.